Uh, We're going to kick off a new series today, uh, and this new series is going to take us all the way to Easter Sunday, which is only about six weeks away, and so uh, this is going to carry us to that place, and uh, we're calling it Gospel Fueled, and uh, today I'm just going to preach a brief uh, message, Lord willing, and uh, it is going to serve as an introduction to this series. Uh, such an important conversation, and we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the chapter of love. Uh, the Apostle Paul is famously talking about the significance, the importance, uh, the spiritual significance, the eternal importance of the, uh, the love of God, agape love. He describes it beautifully, and uh, in, in, in fact, I'm sure this scripture will be read today at this couple's wedding that is happening this afternoon. Uh, legally, you're not married until this is read at your wedding, uh, and I'm going to read it today, and uh, just the first three verses, and this is what it says. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and I don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Um, The Apostle Paul, this is before he gets into the description of love is patient, love is kind, starts talking about the, the, the qualities of love. Uh, he is he's basically making the statement, there are a, a lot of impressive things that a Christian can do. Uh, he lists them. These are very impressive, over-the-top, amazing sacrifices that a believer, a Christian can make. And he sort of builds, he crescendos. I mean, he, keeps, he talks, talks about speaking of the uh, tongues of men and angels. He talks about knowing all the mysteries and all the knowledge, having all faith. He goes into this idea of, okay, if I give everything I have away, uh, give everything I have away. I, I have nothing. I am now poor, but other people who were poor are no longer poor because I gave it all away. That is some serious devotion and faith and love. It is impressive, to say the least. And, and then he crescendos the thing that is, there's nothing, there's no greater act of personal devotion towards Jesus Christ than being martyred. He says, I could be martyred for Jesus. And this is the most impressive thing. There's nothing beyond that because life is over. That is the most daring, amazing act that one could do of faith and devotion to Christ. But then he says something that is a little weird. He says, I could do all that. But if love wasn't the reason I did those things, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's void of meaning or purpose or impact. It doesn't matter. In fact, he says, I could do all those things continually, and truthfully, if love's absent, I'm just annoying. I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. There's nothing life-giving or vibrant about what I'm doing. It's just religious activity. Um, I don't know that we're accustomed to that mentality. I, I think that's more jarring then we would even, if we just read this kind of at first glance and uh, just kind of gloss over what he's saying, it, it doesn't hit us. But if you really take some time and consider what he's saying, this is jarring. To say that being martyred for Jesus doesn't matter, that, that is, I mean, that is a bold, bold statement. And what he's saying, 
In other words, the motivation behind what we do is even more important than what we do. So the why supersedes the what. And uh, there is a motivation, there is a reason, there is a purpose behind everything that we do. What's my motivation? Uh, there's, there's a reason we do what we do. There's a reason we get out of bed in the morning. Uh, there's a lot of times that we would choose not to. And there's a lot of times we choose not to. Because uh, we don't feel like it. But, but the paycheck awaits. The job awaits. Or, or whatever reason you had to get up on a muggy day to come to church this morning. Praise God. I'm glad you did. But there's a reason. There's a motivation behind it. There's a reason behind the decisions we make, the places where we live, what we drive. There's a, there's a motivation and a reason behind everything that we do, what we say, everything. There's always a reason. And our motivation could be an array of things. It could be some deep sense of obligation uh, or, or deep connection with responsibility. We, need, we have to do it. We just have no choice. Um, we might be in our uh, efforts trying to prove something to somebody, trying to gain approval from somebody. A lot of what we do is to prove something to the judge of our life, whoever that is, even if it's ourselves, to prove that I can do it. I, I love watching like reality shows and, and, and competition shows, and there's always uh, at least one person that says, you know, I, I, I want to prove to someone who didn't think I could do this that I can do this. And that drives them to do things. There's something in that that is pushing them, compelling them. Uh, maybe it's fear. I think fear might be one of the most common motivators of the things that we do. Fear motivates us all to do something. Uh, and so fear can drive us. Uh, is it greed? Sometimes we put our head down and do things just out of pure, I want more. Good intentions. Sometimes we do things just because we're not, not that bad of people. <laughs> but it can also be selfishness, just because we are consumed with ourselves. Either way, in this results-oriented world which we live in, that is driven by, I just want the result. I just want, just do what you're supposed to do. Uh, we're not really normally considering the motivation. We Actually, I'd say this. We don't really care what the motivation is in our world, in our culture. It doesn't matter to us. Um, I, I remember growing up, my, my mom would say to me, Christopher, go clean your room. And it would be a disaster area. I, I could make a mess. I still can make a mess. But my mom would say, Christopher, clean your room. Uh, I can honestly say this, and you can ask her after church if this is true. Uh, you can confirm this. I don't think she cared about my heart in, in behind, does he really want to clean his room for the love and consideration of his, of his family and his parents? Uh, is his heart into it? I don't think she cared. It's just do it. Just make it happen. That, that's become a slogan in our culture. Just do it. We don't really care about the motivation. I, do I care if the barista at Starbucks, their heart is in it. They're really pouring love into the cup. Uh, I don't really care. I just want it made right. I just want the result of the iced coffee in my hand made perfectly. Do we care about the motivation behind everybody around us? No. You know, the officer p pulls you over for, for, for speeding and you can't, you know, he doesn't care if, if you say to him, I know I was going 65 and a 55, but my, in my heart, 
I was only going 35. That doesn't matter. I don't care what you thought. I don't care what you feel. I don't, I don't care about the motivation. I don't care the why behind the what. I just want that. And that's the way that our world works. And if this performance-oriented culture is so pervasive, it's the, it's the system that we understand, of course it's going to affect the way that we see God. It's going to move its way over to our, our, how we interact and understand God to work. So in our minds, and you probably heard this preached ad nauseum, God probably doesn't really care about how you feel. He doesn't really even care about you. You're a cog in the wheel. He just cares about your performance. He just is after what you do. In fact, the old adage, do right because it's right to do right. Daggone it. Be obedient. Check the boxes. Keep the commands. God doesn't care about your feelings. He doesn't care about how you, how you feel about things. He doesn't care about the motivation. He's just after your outward compliance. That's why we over-spiritualize doing things we don't feel like doing. Well, Chris, I didn't really feel like coming to church today, but by God, I did. Praise the Lord Jesus. And for, somehow in our brains, that, that's extra credit. I didn't even feel like giving today. I didn't feel like worshiping. <laughs> like God's like, that's, there, there you go. But we think that our doing things that we don't want to do, that we're not motivated to do, reveals our deep spiritual righteousness. Truthfully, it reveals our deep spiritual unrighteousness. Because we don't want to do it. We're not compelled to do it. So there's something wrong. Something strange is afoot at the Circle K, to quote Bill and Ted's excellent adventure in church. Praise Jesus. I love this church. Um, quick qualifier. Uh, and I think this is important to say. I would rather do things that I know are right, do things that I know I should do, even if I don't feel like it, rather than not. So I, I think a lot of people take this as, as the, the, the escape hatch to say, well, see, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. I think um, being an adult, being a grown-up, being someone who is mature says, I don't really feel like taking out the trash, but I'm going to. Uh, I don't really feel like serving, but I'm going to because other people are serving and they're working twice as hard because I don't feel like it and I'm not going to. I think it's better to do even if we don't feel like doing. But we need to understand that those, that doing is not earning us extra credit in the eyes of God. So the motivation is important. So, here's the statement. God is not simply after your outward compliance. He's just not. In fact, I've heard somebody say this before, and I agree with this completely. God doesn't just want your obedience. He wants a certain type of obedience. It's not just obedience He's after. He's after something very specific. And ultimately what He's after, not your outward compliance, He's after you. Your heart. Let me read this to you. This is all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. You've heard this said, God sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What's that speaking to? Well, 
The heart is the motivation. It's where the reason, where the why is. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart because from there is the wellspring of life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Bible talks about finances. Wherever your treasure are, that's where your heart is because that's where it comes from. Value comes from the center place of your heart, of your life, and that's speaking to the true you, the real you, the spirit you. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And this comes from the overflow of who we truly are and who God's made us to be, which is realized in the place of our heart, our spirit. Deep calls to deep. God's spiritual. He speaks spiritual language to the spirit you. That's why God does not make intellectual sense most of the time. Foolishness is how the, the, the Bible describes the world's perspective of the gospel. It is foolishness. But it is our hope. It is our reason. It is our fuel. So God looks at the intention of the heart. Uh, one of the most beautiful stories in the entire Bible is one that Jesus shared about a prodigal son. And, and this is one of the most important stories that we could ever consider because Jesus is describing our dynamic with the Father directly. So it's very, this, there, there's not a more important story to put intention on and consider. And in the story, we all know it's very familiar. We got a, a, a young, upcoming, licentious, uh, kind of naughty kid who basically can't wait to get out there and break the rules. Uh, and so he goes to his own father and says, Dad, I can't wait for you to die so that I can get my inheritance. Can we just pretend you're dead and give me the inheritance today? I'd smack that kid. Excuse me? I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. That's what I would have said to him. But the father says, okay, here you go. Now, is that the right parenting move? I would say no. Is that what I would do? Absolutely not. But this father is quite different from me, obviously. And so he says, here, you can go. So uh, as the Bible describes it, doesn't get into much detail, leaves it to your own imagination. And, and based on how... Uh, how naughty you are uh, is, is the, has, how the, kind of paints the picture for you what the, the prodigal son does with this money. And so he goes out there, mm, 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 lives it up in the clubs, everybody in the club getting tipsy, and uh, does his thing and whatever. Moment of clarity. He spent all the money, he's out of money, he's had all the fun, and he basically finds himself in this kind of weird moment of clarity fighting over edamame with pigs, trying to get the pig slop and eat that. That's how hungry and desperate he is. And so he's like, you know what? Uh, my dad has lots of employees. I'll go back home and I will clock in as an employee of his, his company, of his enterprise, and I'll work and be an employee. 
in the story, you, you don't just find the story of one brother. You find the story of two. One, not just one son, but two. You've got a younger brother who is trying to find freedom, trying to find meaning and, and purpose, and, and trying to find joy in breaking the rules. And then you have this other son who's really uh, addicted to keeping the rules. And that's where he's trying to find identity and purpose and meaning. Keeping the rules. Checking the boxes. Being the ideal son. He's showing up the other kid. He's the perfect one. He's the buttoned-up one. Mm, hello. His name is Buffy. Hello, Buffy. And this other kid's just completely lost his mind while this older brother is got it all together. But both of them in the story are, are contrasted as being equally lost. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, the bigger picture of what's being said here is the father wasn't really interested in what they're doing. He was interested in them being his son. So when the, young, the younger brother comes home, the father's like, my son. He doesn't even, he interrupts the apology, doesn't even want to hear it. Don't care. And the younger brother is like, I'll be an employee. And the the father's like, no, no, you're my son. You're not an employee. You're not going to work for me. You're my son. Well, he kills the bull and throws the party. and, and, And suddenly, the older brother who's outside working, doing all the right things, doing right because it's right to do right, he starts hearing the, uh, the party mix happening on in the inside of the house. And he immediately is furious. How dare this old man to celebrate this punk, this dirty, gross, smelly sinner. And I promise you, he started itemizing. Do you know what he's done? And probably starts listing the things that the other kid's done like we all do. That person's bad because ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba. Evidence A, evidence B, there it is. So the father comes out and said, buddy, can you come inside, party with us? And the son's like, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've worked, I've I've worked hard for the money, and you better treat me right. I'm I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm doing right because it's right to do right. And this is what the father says. This whole time, you've been my son. That's what he points out. You're acting and thinking like an employee, and I'm telling you, you're my son. It's not what you do for me, it's who you are to me. That's it. That is the entire conversation. Is It is not about what we do or don't do. It is about who we are to God. Now, I am personally a performance-oriented people pleaser. It is a deep addiction of mine and I will admit it and I will acknowledge it because it's probably obvious I'd rather just say it than be found out but I am addicted to people pleasing I want everybody to like me I want everyone to like what I do I want everyone to approve of me it is a deep-rooted addiction and I just have not been able to shake it so it is extremely difficult for me to detach love and approval from my own personal performance. It is very difficult for me to put those in two different categories. Because to me, in the back of my mind, all love is conditional. 
All of it. You may say it's not, but deep down, it really is. Mr. Rogers, who I quote a lot, I've regressed as I've gotten older and going back to learning from the guy I started learning from back when it all started. Um, he was quite brilliant, a wonderful minister and beautiful heart, obviously, but he, he, he spoke to this very thing. He said this, it, it, it's, it's really easy to fall into the trap of believing that what we do is more important than what we are. Of course, the opposite is true. What we are ultimately determines what we do. That's the key. The reason that God is so enthralled with heart and motivation is not just because he wants you, even though that's primarily the whole point, but he knows if he has you, then you are going to live life out of the place of where you are loved, where you are forgiven, where you are found righteous, and that is a gift to the rest of the world. The greatest gift that you can give humanity is you. The greatest gift that you have to give this world is you. And Jesus knows if he has your heart, then he shines brightly through that gift. I want to sum up the entire Bible in three sentences, cover to cover, not to oversimplify, but this is the crux of the Bible. This is it. The message of the Bible is this. God's demand, be perfect. That's the demand. Be perfect. Not pretty good. Not try your hardest. Not do your best and God will do the rest. No. God's priority, His demand is perfection. Because God is a perfect God, and if he settled for anything less, then God ceases to be perfect himself. He can't deny himself. He cannot fake it and pretend he's something other than what he is. He is God, and he is perfect. So God accepts only perfection. God's diagnosis. You're not perfect. Fail. F minus. And some people hate hearing that. If you want to build your church, tell people they're making an A plus. If you want to, if you want to keep the back door swinging, swing and tell people they're failing miserably. God bless you. Thanks for coming this morning. You fail. But we all do. And anyone that believes otherwise is deceiving themselves. Perfection is not a bar that we can reach. Perfection is impossible. And God's diagnosis is you can't, you're not, and you can't ever be. God's demand, perfection, God's diagnosis, you're not. God's deliverance, Jesus is for you. That sums up the entire Bible. God's demand, be perfect. God's diagnosis, you can't be. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only those with perfectly clean hands and perfectly pure hearts. That means action and intention. Who can do that? Christ alone. Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is my everything. Without him, all hope is lost. This is not... 
Jesus didn't come to hit a divine reset button and say, I know you messed up, try harder that next time. That's not at all. If I could do it, if I can make this happen, if I can live the life that God's called me to live in my own strength, then Jesus' death was a divine overreaction. He died unnecessarily, and that is not true. Jesus is perfect for our, on our behalf. He's perfect for us. He is righteous for us. All of this, God sending His very own Son to take our place to, the Bible says it this way, He became sin. He personified all of our sin. And that's just not the verb sin, like I stubbed my toe and said a wordy dirt. I'm talking about the noun, the overarching ruling system that controls us, that tells us what to do, that holds us down, that makes us selfish, that makes us greedy, that makes us mean, that makes us ornery, that makes us divisive. All the overarching, the, the thing that controls our tongues and controls our brains. Jesus came to say, done with it. Dead. And now you are a new creation And in Christ's eyes, you are sinless. This isn't about sinning less. You are sinless. As he is, so are you in this world. Is he sinless? Yes, so are you. You are righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for you. And the motivation behind all of that is key. And it is the most well-known verse of the entire Bible states it clearly, just so we know. Why did God do this? What was God's move here? For God so loved you, He gave everything for you. If God didn't love you, He wouldn't have given everything for you. And He doesn't love the clean, idealistic version of you. He doesn't love the future version of you. The Bible says clearly that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love some polished up, clean version of you. here's, Here's the mentality we've got to get. This is revelation. God, Jesus' sacrifice did not cause God to love us. God's love for us caused Jesus to sacrifice for us. And you might be thinking, chicken and the egg. No, it is not. Because in a world consumed by performance-oriented Christianity and religion, we're constantly trying to merit and earn what God gives freely. And we think if we could just do more, then God would give us more. It's an attempt to repay the gift of the amazing grace that He gives us. And in that attempt is to forget that we are sons and daughters and to start thinking as employees. It's a transactional way that the world works. This for that. It's transactional and, and it's so pervasive, it, it, it can be how we identify our dynamic with God. And so we attempt to prompt God to do for us by first doing for Him. If I do for Him, God will respond by doing for me. It's merit and demerit. One of the most important parts of this entire conversation is, re- is realizing and owning the reality that we all do that. We all think that way. In fact, I would say that this whole conversation over the next six weeks hinges on our realization and owning the fact that we all think that way. We all think that way, we act that way varying degrees, but we all do. 
Deep down, we're all addicted to performance, earning, merit, demerit. I want to read this mock prayer. And uh, I love sarcasm. And uh, it's a spiritual gift of mine. And so uh, the great author, Robert Capon, he's probably my favorite author, uh, who was a great minister. And he wrote this mock prayer to sort of identify, put himself in the place of all of us. And if we were to pray honestly, this is probably what a lot of us would sound like. He, goes, he says this, Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there is at least something that we can do. That we can even in some small way keep some small earning power in our own hands. Tell us that in spite of all of our nights of losing, there will be at least one redeeming card of our own. Lord, let your servants depart in the peace of their proper responsibility. If it's not too much to ask, Lord, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, do not, do not tell us about grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. If I'm honest with you, which I try to be, that's me. It's really only been in discovering how deeply religious I am. If I told the story while I was in Georgia last week with friends at another church, I said the beginning of this year was different from all the beginnings of other years. Because normally at the beginning of the year, there's a religious Christ that just mindlessly spouts off what religion says to say. And what I would say every year, beginning of every year, hey guys, this is your year. This is going to be the best you've ever had. And it's just a religious, mindless aping of religiosity. It's old religious Chris. It's not being honest. It's not being sincere. It's not walking and working through this stuff with you. It's just spouting off nonsense. Well, I stood at the, at, at, right here, different place, but right in front of the church, 2020. Hey guys, this is your year. It's going to be the best year you've ever had. I've never been more wrong about anything in my life. I was 100% wrong. Not even, not even 1% right. Wrong, it was, in fact, it wasn't just not the best, it was the worst. And so this year I stood in front of this church right here, and I said something way more honest. I said, this year is going to, there's going to be some beautiful moments that we all love. And in this year, there's going to be some heartbreak, and there's going to be some disappointment, and there's going to be some things that we absolutely hate. That's honest. That's truth. It is not religious nonsense. So this old religious Chris dies hard. And, and it really, it, it's un, until I started seeing him more and more and understanding more and more that he's still there, that I started to empathize with other people who can't let go of the religious sensibilities. In, in, my, in my early conversion of being introduced to the gospel of grace, I would walk around, stare down my nose and say, how can people still be addicted to legalism? What is wrong with them? Why do religious people insist on religion? You tell them, listen, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And you do not, the prison doors are open and you still want to sit in there and act like you're locked up. What is that? Well, I get it now. Because I do the same thing. 
And I'll tell you where it comes from. A deep craving for personal significance. A deep addiction for meaning importance that I, that I earned. Merit. I want to earn it. To quote Robert Capon again, he says, grace is for losers and who wants to stand in their line? And that's a lot of our aversion to the idea of grace is because grace is for people that can't do it themselves. It's a handout. No one wants a handout. Have you ever tried to open the door for a stranger and then they insist on taking the door from you and putting their hand on it? Like, no, I got it. It's like they can't even receive the gift of an open door. And I can say, that's silly. I do that all the time. I'm like, God, I got this one, pal. In fact, a lot of times, and I, I'm sad to admit this as a pastor, Jesus is the last place that I go. I try to do it, try to work it out, try to solve it. I'll call my wife, get her to involved, try to solve it together. I will get Berkeley involved. She's pretty smart. We try to solve it. And finally, I'm like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Two weeks later, I'm going to pray. I'm a pastor. This is what I do for a living. But there's something in me that is addicted to do-it-yourself religion. If you sit back and you observe this world and, and humanity itself, you'll see a, a world full of people who are exhausting themselves, desperately trying to scratch and claw for some sense of uniqueness, specialness, meaning and purpose. Desperately trying to be, in and of themselves, important and special. They try so hard. I, I know where that comes from because we all do it. We all want to be seen as special. This is a world of billions of people, and we don't want to just be one of. We want to be special. And so we start looking. We even look to our ailments and infirmities. This is what's wrong with me. This is what I struggle with. This is, this is the thing, the ailment that I have to try to separate ourselves from everybody else to say, there, there I am. I'm special. Here's a label. This is where I want to close today. We are so much more than that. You are so much more than what you do, how you look, what you have. You are so much more than the temporal existence that we have on this planet. You are more than your job. You are more than your career. You are more than your income. You are more than your title. You are more than your marital status. You are more than the number of kids that you have. You are more than where your kids go to school. You are more than what you drive. Although although those things added together don't even scratch the surface of who God's made you to be. In fact, there is so much freedom in letting go of of the trivial of the shallow and insignificant things that we try to let define us. We're defined by what we listen to, our hobby, what we wear, and that's quick snap judgment. Ah, that guy likes country music. Woo-hoo. Oh, he likes Chris Stapleton. That's okay. You get a pass. Well, that guy, he's a lawyer. 
front row. I know some lovely, wonderful lawyers. Not a lot of them, but I know some. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But then you start to consider, how does God see me? What does God see? Does he see the facade? You think God's up there nudging Jesus, saying, ah, this kid likes Pearl Jam. (laughs) No. He loves you. Holistically, entirely, to the fiber of your being, before you were created, he knew you and he loved you. Before you... Before you had likes and dislikes, he loved you. In fact, he loved you so much. Get this. This will blow your mind. He loved you so much, he made you. Have you thought about that? He loved the thought of you so much that he created a you. The love was preceded the creation. He loved you so much that God himself would take time to invest love, care, creativity to design and create you. And then he didn't stop there. He sent his one and only son to die a criminal's death on a cross to redeem you so that he could spend eternity with you. Brennan Manning said that your true identity, the true self, is God's beloved. Any other identity is an illusion. Who you are is the one whom Jesus loves. That is the true you, and that is who you truly are. And what we're supposed to be fueled by, motivated by, live by, uh, do our work, live, breathe, have our being, the thing that's supposed to motivate us and fuel us is the reality that God loves us enough to die for us. That God loved us enough to create us and die for us. May that be what directs our course. May that be what causes us to live and breathe and have our being. I'm going to end with this last quote. This is the great Catherine Doherty, who is just a legend, pioneer, author, activist. She was amazing. But she wrote this. The gospel can be summed up by saying that it is the tremendous, tender, compassionate, gentle, extraordinary, explosive, revolutionary uh, revelation of Christ's love. I love when she says it can be summed up like this and then she gives like 15 adjectives. It's brilliant. We are created to be carried fueled by. The undercurrent that's supposed to lift our wings is the the amazing, tremendous, tender, compassionate, gentle, extraordinary, explosive, revolutionary love that God loves us with. The inescapable, unconditional, furious love of heaven. That is what's supposed to control our decisions, guide our hearts and our lives and carry us to a place that only He can carry us. We're meant and designed to be fueled by the gospel.